Now, if you'll remain standing one moment more, we'll turn to our sermon text, which is Matthew chapter 16. Um, and the sermon will be verses 20 through 27, um, but we'll read verses 20 through 28. This is the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 16. Verses 20 through 28. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. Would you please be seated? We're given the content of our sermon this morning and the fact that this is uh, um, the day on which we reflect on the Protestant Reformation and the the goings on there, I, I wanted to call your minds to a man by the name of uh, Nicholas Ridley. And before we do that, I would like to pray for us. Father in heaven, these are your words. They are the lamp to our feet. They teach us how to live. They are our meditation. They are the comfort in our affliction. And, O oh, Father, as we live in a time of war, looking forward to the time of peace, would You give us courage, give us resolve, give us humility and love for Christ and our neighbor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nicholas Ridley was the chaplain to Henry VIII, so we're going back into the 16th century, the 1500s, and he was Bishop of London under Henry's son, Edward. He was uh, a strong preacher and well known for his ability in the pulpit. He had a good friend by the name of Hugh Latimer, uh, and you may know them together because they were both imprisoned under the reign of Bloody Mary. He was a strong supporter of Lady Jane Grey. And so when the time came to determine which of Henry VIII's 
descendants should claim the throne, he supported Lady Jane Grey. In fact, he preached a sermon on July 9th, 1553, proclaiming that Mary and Elizabeth were illegitimate children and that the throne of England did not belong to them. So when Bloody Mary ascended to the throne, a Roman Catholic, she had Nicholas and his friend Hugh Latimer imprisoned. And they were eventually burned at the stake on the charge of heresy. Because they rightly called the papist mass blasphemous, idolatrous, and unbiblical. And so ultimately Mary condemned him and Hugh Latimer to a horrendous death. In standing for Christ, Ridley and every other reformer stood against the Pope and wicked kings. They challenged both the Pope, the church, and the state. And they faced the highest punishment administered by the church, which was excommunication, and the state, which was capital punishment. And they did so bravely and with the understanding that the kingdom of Jesus Christ would prevail. They stood like the apostles who faced a a similar fate. And this is important to us today because in our passage, Jesus reminds us that those who would follow Christ in this world and advance His kingdom must learn from Him and anticipate resistance. Those who would follow Christ in this world and advance His kingdom must learn from Him and advance His kingdom. Now, in our prior passage, last week we we saw that Jesus Jesus, um, made some promises to His apostles. He, He announced victory. If you look back at Matthew 16, verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, the picture that we get there is the church of Jesus Christ, which is connected to the assembly of Israel, it's one entity, will attack the gates of hell, and the the gates of hell will not stand against it. They will not prevail. The church will prevail. The church that Jesus himself builds will prevail over it. We see that he has granted a particular authority in verse 19 to these disciples. The, you are the men who, will, who have the keys of heaven and you exercise them on the earth. You admit men into the kingdom of heaven and you demit through excommunication men from the kingdom of heaven. And now he establishes an expectation. There's this strange thing that he says at the end of this, making all these, all these promises. You've got this authority. You're going to go and carry out this ministry with the expectation of victory. But shh, don't tell anybody. Isn't that a strange passage? We encounter this from time to time in the Gospels where Jesus says, now don't go, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. And this is what he says to to his apostles. And we'll see two points from this. One, Jesus' ambassadors must be taught. And then secondly, Jesus' ambassadors must count the cost. 
and I'm aware of the time, so I'll be as quick as I can be. Let's notice, first of all, that Jesus' ambassadors must be taught. Jesus commanded his disciples not to say that he is the Messiah in verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. In other words, I'm going to give you the best news in the world, that hell is going to be conquered, but don't tell anybody. Hold on. And we scratch our heads. Why on earth, why on earth would Jesus tell his disciples not to go and, and begin the ministry, not to tell anybody that, hey, that guy over there, that's the Christ, that's the son of David, that's the one that Daniel predicted, the son of man, the one who's going to ascend up into the presence of the Father and there receive his crown, that's him. Jesus says, no, be quiet, don't tell anybody. And we learn why Jesus told them to be quiet in the, pre, in the subsequent verses. In verse 21, notice he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So Jesus discloses there the remainder of his mission. They, they've seen him exercise his authority. They've seen Satan bound that Jesus can do whatsoever he pleases. And now he tells them to be quiet and he tells them the remainder of his mission. He's turning his face now to Jerusalem and he says to them, I have to go and suffer. I'm going to die and be raised again. He's going to enter Jerusalem, the place now of violence. He's going to suffer at the hands of the Antichrist, the ecclesiastical leaders. He's going to be killed and raised the third day. This is Jesus' first reference to what may, must take place during his passion week. And we remember that when David entered Jerusalem, how did he do so? David went in dancing. As a conquering king, so did Christ. But he did not conquer the Jebusites and return with the ark of God. Jesus conquered Hades and returned with the keys of death and hell. And he tells his disciples, this must be accomplished. In other words, Peter, before your confession can have the effect of saving anyone from their sins, I have to go and die and be raised. And notice Peter's response now. May it never be. Absolutely not. I forbid it. This will not happen. I will not permit it. Peter's incredulous. There's no way. Lord, I've seen you walk on the water and offend the Pharisees and tell me to just forget it. Don't worry about those guys. And now you're telling me that they're going to take you and they're going to, to kill you? And Jesus responded by chastising Peter. Get behind me, Satan. This is no gentle rebuke. Jesus reminded Peter that in that moment he was acting as an agent of Satan. 
demonstrating hell's resistance to heaven's mission is accomplished through men. And it reminds him, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And what we notice in this in these verses in 21 to 23, what we notice is the reason that Jesus told them to be quiet. You see, they didn't fully understand yet. You, you can't go and tell people that Jesus is the Messiah because you don't fully understand His mission yet. You've got to understand the full scope of all that Christ as the Son of Man and the Son of God does, what He is to accomplish and how He is to accomplish it before you can make it good news. And I think this is just a simple reminder to us that subordination comes before authorization. Or, you don't send untrained soldiers into battle. In, in the war with, with Ukraine, not long ago, it came to light that Russia had recruited soldiers, taken them off the streets, and within days sent them into battle to be slaughtered. And there's been an outcry because they didn't train these men. They gave them weapons, told them how to turn off the safety, and said, have at it. You don't send untrained soldiers into battle. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. The apostles have to remain quiet. They must remain right now in a passive learning position. This is so, so critical for us to remember you and I, we begin our Christian journey, we begin with submission, with sitting at the feet of Christ and learning from Him. That is so important. He, he has come to teach you how to engage the world, how to understand the, the processes and procedures that this world is operating in, to, to teach you what His mission is for the world and how He is to accomplish it. The Great Commission is, teach them to obey all I have commanded you. And if, if you are to engage in the Great Commission, then you must have a working knowledge of the commands of Christ. You must understand why Christ is to be obeyed and what gives Him authority. When, this is why, in the, why it is right that ministers of the gospel should be examined and elders in the church should be examined. Why? To demonstrate that you have the knowledge sufficient to be a shepherd so that you don't go out and accidentally, like Peter, say things that the devil would say. This is why Paul commanded that new converts could not be elders. This is why children are not missionaries into the field. This is why we examine people before we commission them. And this is essential for you too. It is essential for you to know Christ's mission. To know Christ. This is eternal life, he said. To know you, Father, and your Son whom you have sent. We begin as ambassadors by learning from Christ. And secondly, 
Jesus' ambassadors must anticipate resistance and embrace the possibility of death. This is verses 24 through 27. Let me just read verse 24 for us. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So these are commands. There are three of them that Jesus issues in verse 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross, and he must follow me. And I want to give you a summary of what Jesus is teaching in verses 24 to 27. It's this. That those who follow Christ must be prepared to lay down their lives physically for His sake. Specifically, they must be prepared to embrace capital punishment from the civil magistrate as represented by the cross. The, The man who in the moment of choice renounces Christ to save his life, destroys his soul. The man who embraces death for Christ saves his soul. And he knows that Christ will be the last judge. Jesus teaches us what an ambassador must do, these three commands in verse 24. You must deny yourself. You must deny yourself to be an ambassador for Christ. What does that mean? To deny means to turn away from or to renounce. You think of the picture of Peter and the rooster crowing. And he denied Christ three times. He turned away from Christ. He renounced any association with Jesus. Aren't you that guy? No. You're the, no. You sure, no. That's denial. Jesus says that this is what is true of the believer. The ambassador for Christ renounces himself. He renounces all selfish ambition. He renounces all pursuit of vainglory. We remember in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, the words of a father to his son ring in our ears. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And, And here's what it means to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't don't think that you know it all. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In other words, let Jesus teach you. You, But how do we normally do it? How do we normally do it? What we do generally is establish our goals and ambitions for life. Then we look to the Scriptures for proof texts for what we already want to do. And in this way, corrupt and pervert God's Word. But Jesus is teaching that His true followers, on the other hand, quench themselves And we look first to the Word. That's our meditation. And then we go from there. We learn, and then we move forward. We look to the Word for discernment, and then we move forward to do what is right. In this way, the law of God reigns over us properly. The second command, you must take up your cross. I think here... 
you anticipate an allegorical explanation of what Jesus means by cross. You might expect an eloquent explanation of crosses as the symbol of self-sacrifice. And I think that's there. That's true. We might say Christians must bear the cross of affliction and suffering in this life. What are you suffering right now? What is your affliction? That's your cross. That's my cross to bear. But I'm not sold that's precisely what Jesus meant in this context. In other words, I don't think he's telling the disciples a parable here. I don't think the cross is a parable for the afflictions of life. And I want to give you a few reasons for that. I'm going to suggest to you that we take the term literally. He's telling the apostles that they must embrace the likelihood of capital punishment at the hands of the governing authorities for preaching Christ and his kingdom. First of all, the context. You remember what Jesus said they're going to do? When Jesus sends the disciples out, the apostles, with the Great Commission, what are they going to do? Save a few people? No. They're going to batter down the gates of hell. You're going out as soldiers to fight. Jesus reminds us of the long war between the sons of Eve and the sons of the devil, which continues to this day. Even though Eve's children will ultimately prevail and the kingdom of Christ will cover the earth, there will be resistance from Satan. You think about battering those gates down and taking the battering ram and hammering the gate and hammering the gate and hammering the gate. All the time, there are arrows raining down upon you, fire coming down upon you to fight back. There will be resistance, Jesus says. This is the same Satan who reminded Jesus that he possessed what? It is temptation. The kingdoms of the earth. I will give them to you. We remember that this is a part of the long war. And we remember as well that Jesus just told the disciples that he will receive brutal treatment and be killed at the hands of the ecclesiastical authorities. That was not an allegory. Jesus is not using figurative language to say, I'm suffering the things of this earth, but the Lord is going to assume me up into heaven like Enoch. It was an allegory. Jesus predicted real suffering and real death and real resurrection. And then He says to His apostles, now, if you follow Me to Jerusalem, what do you expect? Do you think they will give a cross to Me and not to you? As well, crucifixion was commonplace in the ancient world. They had seen people crucified. This sort of death was particularly heinous in Israel because of the dictate that a man hanged on a tree was cursed. That's Deuteronomy 21-23. And you remember why men were hanged on trees in Deuteronomy 21-23? For blasphemy. Exactly what Jesus was accused of. 
In Ezra, King Darius decreed that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. That's Ezra 6.11. Crucifixion was common capital punishment for criminals. That's what the apostles knew. And Jesus is telling them, you must anticipate physical crucifixion if you follow me. Also, consider redemptive history. Remember that throughout the history of Scripture, this long war between the sons of God and the sons of the devil has often um, manifested itself in the opposition of the state, the civil government, against the assembly of God. It appears as a fight between oppressive governors and God's people. We could go back probably to Lot and the five kings from which Abraham rescued him, but definitely to Pharaoh and Moses. Definitely to Joshua's campaigns in Canaan. Definitely to Jeremiah versus Jehoiakim. Definitely to Daniel versus Nebuchadnezzar. And who can forget Ahab versus Elijah? You remember when Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard and he couldn't get it so he went in his room and sucked his thumb and so his wife got it for him through murder and then Ahab says hallelujah hallelujah I own Naboth's vineyard and he went down to Naboth's vineyard and who should meet him there but Elijah and these famous words from Ahab to Elijah have you found me O my enemy This long war of the church, the people of God versus the people of the devil has often manifested itself as the prophets of God proclaiming the evils of the civil magistrate and the devil using the civil magistrate to try and extinguish the people of God. Think of the Hebrew midwives. Think of Herod killing the children in Israel and Jerusalem. And Jesus warned his disciples in chapter 10, verses 17 to 18 of Matthew, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. So what is he telling him now? Guys, think of all of life as a symbolic cross and bear it. That's not what he's saying. He's telling his apostles that when you go into this world and you tell the world that Christ has all authority in heaven and earth, that kings and princes and people are all to obey Christ, that they are to implement His law and love Him and worship Him, the devil will respond and use all of his vehemence against you, including capital punishment at the hands of the civil magistrate. Let me give you a conclusion and then a caution. So Jesus commands his followers to be ready to accept death at the hands of the civil magistrate as Christ's kingdom advances. Isn't that what Nicholas Ridley did? Isn't that what Hugh Latimer did? Isn't that what every single apostle, as far as we know, did? Peter was crucified upside down. By whom? 
the civil magistrate bowing his knee to the throne of Satan. Jesus is teaching you that you must be ready to give up your life. You must be ready to suffer a shameful, horrible, excruciating death for his cause. And in verse 26 then, he goes on and he says, For what will it profit a man? I'm sorry, verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You you understand now what he's saying. In that moment of decision, when the king demands that you renounce fidelity to Christ and obey him, instead, will you say, yes, Lord? This was a decision that would face the apostles. Will you deny me? Or will you say, hail Caesar? The man who bows to Caesar forfeits his soul into judgment. The man who bows to Christ, being sustained by his spirit, finds everlasting life. And this teaches us how the mission of God's people is transformed in the new covenant, doesn't it? Because we don't take up swords. Jesus doesn't call upon his apostles now to take up swords and and like the followers of Joshua, go into the land and conquer it with blood. We still go into Christ's land and we still claim it for his glory, but we do not do it by the sword of the flesh. We do it by the sword of the Spirit. Laying down our lives when called to do so. The proclamation of the kingdom challenges kings. The proclamation of the kingdom challenges kings. It reminds them that they are servants of God and responsible to submit to the authority of Christ. They do not have God's authorization to exercise despotic power over Christ's earth. They must submit. Let me give you a caution. Does Christ here urge an anarchic overthrow of civil government? Absolutely not. It is God Himself who established civil government and the governing authorities are His deacons, according to Romans 13, to carry out His will, to serve Him. And so godly people give reverent esteem, just as David to Saul, to the governing authorities. But Christ's men, listen, Christ's men and women and children will only obey the government so long as His laws are in accordance with Christ. Christ is the ultimate King. Jesus tells the apostles what to expect as the church batters down hell's gates. There will be resistance. Specifically, as throughout all biblical history, that resistance will come from the civil magistrate. Inflamed by hell, the state will seek to silence the apostles' message. The apostles come in the name of Christ, announcing his authority over all the earth, and certain rulers will hate that message. These rulers see in that message a threat against their own authority. And so they use the power at their disposal to destroy the message, even up to the infliction of capital punishment. 
In other words, the blasphemy recognized by the civil magistrate is to say that Christ is the Lord over Caesar. Let me just get you to turn with me over to Revelation chapter 13. In in the book of Daniel, um, a vision is given of kingdoms rising to power. And each of these kingdoms is called a beast. And I think there's an obvious reason for that because as humans are corrupted and descend, they become beast-like. But there are four beasts in Daniel, and then we have a beast in Revelation 13. Let's read verses 7 to 9. Let's, let's pick up with verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And so here, the reference to the beast is also a kingdom. It is Rome, and specifically Nero. And so in verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints. You see? Here's the civil magistrate, inflamed by hell, making war on the people of God. Why? This was Tertullian's question. Why? Why do you kill us? Because we name Christ. To make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, And all who dwell on earth will worship everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This is a picture of what the apostles would face in their day, the great persecution of Rome against the church. A war that continues to a lesser degree even to this day. Jesus teaches us That those who would follow Christ in this world and advance His kingdom must learn from Him and anticipate resistance. We have to anticipate that. This is not a physical war. It is a, a war that is inflamed by hell, resisting its gates being torn down. But they will lose. The day that Nicholas Ridley was put to death, he was burned. And he and Hugh Latimer were taken on that day and they were bound and they were shackled to a stake. And you can actually visit the spot in Oxford where they were burned to this day. And in the words of one historian, he said, Ridley said, good fellow, as the smith chained Nicholas Ridley to the stake, Ridley said, good fellow, Knock it hard, for the flesh will have its way. In other words, he knew that he would be tempted in that moment to say, stop, and save his life and deny Christ. Nicholas Ridley did not want the intense pain to make him flee the sake. The hour of his final battle had come. As the wood was lit and laid at the feet of the two men, 
There was perfect silence in the air as the tension mounted. As the flames began to leap upward, Latimer broke the tense silence with those immortal words, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. As the fire blazed up, the wind blew the fire to the side of old father Latimer. Latimer looked upward and said peacefully, Father of heaven, receive my soul. He soon died with little apparent pain. It would not be so with Ridley. He would indeed have need to play the man. The wind blew the fire hard to Latimer's side, and the fire on Ridley's side was badly made. The green wood on top would not catch fire, but the wood at the bottom burned fiercely. While Ridley's face and body were unharmed, his legs were almost burned away. All this time, his shirt was not even singed. He involuntarily leaped up and down in the fire as the burning flesh and muscles reacted to the pain, but he would not utter a scream or cry of reproach. John Fox, one of his friends, says, even in this torment, he did not forget to call on God, saying, Lord, have mercy on me. A relative of Ridley's tried to relieve his agony and piled more wood on the fire. They even say that they took um, black powder and put it around his neck, hoping that it would just explode and kill him. This only worsened the problem, and Ridley suffered on, but he played the man. Finally, one of the guards realized the problem and reached forward with the hook at the end of his halberd. Pulling away the topmost wood, the fire blazed upward through the wood. Ridley cried out in Latin the words he had learned long ago, in manus tuus domine, commendo spiritum meum, into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. Hugh Latimer, as they were burning, said to Ridley, this day we will light a candle in England that will never be extinguished. And you know what? They were right. And one of the things that we have to understand as believers is that although Satan's power to deceive has been bound, his ferocity in fighting against the advance of Christ's kingdom burns on. And he burns that anger through leaders. And Christians have to be ready at any moment to pay the ultimate price for the sake of fidelity to Christ. So that the historian concludes by saying the candle that was lit by Latimer and Ridley that day is still burning brightly. If you hold an English Bible in your hands... If you sing hymns from an English hymnal, if you worship God in spirit and truth, then you owe these men a debt of gratitude. Truly, they did light a candle that has never gone out. That shining candle is now entrusted to us. These are the words of John in his second epistle. Don't let it be extinguished. Don't compromise the word of God. Don't give up the truth for which these men died, even if you must burn for it. Remember Master Ridley and play the man. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, it is sobering to remember that we are in the midst of a long war. 
a war between the sons of God and the sons of the devil. We thank You that the Son of God came, died, vanquished His enemy, stole His keys, ascended into heaven, and is seated at Your right hand. We thank You that even now the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ abides in every believer. We have a taste through Christ and the work of Your Holy Spirit of the Kingdom to come. But Lord, You've ordained to leave us here as good soldiers to fight on. And we ask that You would help us to do that. Free us, O Father, of every fear. Save one. That we would fear God only. Give us a heart that is faithful to You. For You set before us the choice of life and death. Help us to choose life. To honor Christ the King. To live for His glory. To proclaim His kingdom. And we pray as You've taught us to pray. Cause Your kingdom to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.